Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Leah Garrett. Professor Garrett is the Director of Jewish Studies Center and Director of Hebrew and Jewish Studies at Hunter College. Professor Garrett is an award-winning author, and some of her books include Young Lions, How Jewish Authors Reinvented the American War Novel. That book won the 2017 Jordan Schnitzer Book Award for Modern Jewish History. Uh, additionally, Professor Garrett is the author of A Night at the Opera, Hein Wagner, Herzl Peretz, and the Legacy of Der Townhauser, The Cross and Other Jewish Stories by Lamed Shapiro, and Journeys Beyond the Pale, Yiddish Travel Writing in the Modern World. And today, we will be discussing an incredibly fascinating page-turner, X-Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos of World War II. This is a deeply researched book. And again, it's a page-turner. urge all of our listeners and viewers to simply go on to Amazon, as I did, click a button, free delivery anywhere in the world, and um, really, really worth, worth the read. We'll get just a little bit of a taste of the book, but again, urge our listeners and uh, viewers to, um, to read the book themselves. Again, Professor Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me today. Just to start off a little bit about your background and how you became interested in X Troop. Well, the book I'd written before X Troop was also about World War II and Jewish servicemen. And I come from a family of proud Jewish servicemen who served in World War II um, for the American military. And I thought after I wrote the last book about um, American Jewish servicemen that I had sort of World War II out of my system. And I thought I was going to write the next book about Mad Magazine. But I went to an event at the Center for Jewish History, which was on World War II, and I thought, oh, I still have this really bad, this real deep itch I need to scratch about uh, Jewish people who fought in the war. And I, it was also a time here in the States when a couple, just a couple years ago, but when anti-Semitism was really bad in our day-to-day -day lives. I was having to deal with it at CUNY and... I felt that I wanted to hear a story about Jews fighting back as well, because I understand that all of our stories about Jews in World War II tend to be about victims or partisans who die. But I was really interested in finding out about Jews who fought back and killed Nazis and made an impact on the war. So I started researching just very randomly to try and figure out if there was a story out there that hadn't been told. And I came across this very, very little work done on this group called X Troop, the secret commando unit of Jewish refugees. And once I started to research it, getting in touch with families, getting in touch with archives, going to different museums, I discovered that there was this remarkable, important story about Jewish soldiers that hadn't been told before and about Jewish men who took the battle against the Nazis right to the front lines and actually made a profound impact in the war. So when I started to research it, I discovered these families had all this archival material 
And when I would ask them to share what they had, it was like everyone was waiting for somebody to tell the story and nobody had told the story. So um, it was before lockdown. And so I just started to do the research and I couldn't believe what I discovered. As you probably noticed when you read the book, every chapter, it's like, are you kidding me? They did this. And then you read the next chapter and you're thinking, and they did this. That's what it was like to research the book, to find that they were at the forefront of all the major military campaigns fighting for the British and people hadn't told their story and knew about them. And for me, it was particularly important because I felt that I was tired of only hearing stories of Jewish victims, which is understandable with World War II, but I knew that there had to be stories of Jews fighting back and surviving and winning and making a difference. And so that was sort of the motivation behind writing it, researching it very deeply, getting tons of sources, and then getting out as quickly as I could. Fascinating. Why and where were Jewish refugees from Germany, Austria, that came during the war interred in England as potential enemies of war? Um, okay, so before I answer that, is it okay if I sort of speak just a little bit about who the ex-troop were so that people will know Absolutely. what I'm talking about? So it, when the war was going really bad for the British, and it seemed like the Germans would constantly win every single campaign, Churchill decided, working with Lord Montbatten, that they would create a secret commando unit of German speakers who would be at the forefront of the British military as commandos and would fight the Germans um, either in France or in Belgium, wherever it was that they were doing the major battles. And the reason that they made this decision was they thought, and they were right, that it would be really important to have men who were trained both as commandos and in counterintelligence. So unlike in America where we had the Ritchie boys, which were also primarily Jewish, who did counterintelligence and sort of did the interrogations against Germans because they had German speakers. These guys were different. These were would be men who would first kill and capture the enemy. And those who were still alive, they would interrogate on the battlefield. This was new. Usually when you capture someone, you take them back to base and interrogate them. So the idea was that these guys would be right at the forefront of the campaign, getting really important intelligence as the battles went on. So when they were thinking about who they would get who were German speakers, there had been a, a huge increase in German speakers over the last couple of years um, as the rise of Nazism came to Germany and Austria. But what they weren't thinking about, or it, does, it doesn't come into any of the documents, was that if you have German speakers in England who want to fight the Nazis, they're going to be Jewish. And so what end, will end up happening once we get more into the story of the X-Troop is that basically every man who they take for this unit, without them consciously thinking this, the, the British, are going to be Jews. And who are they? And this is to your question. They're German Jewish refugees and Austrian Jewish refugees. Now, most of them come to the United Kingdom in sometime between 1933 and 1939. Many of them come on kinder transport. Almost all of them come alone. They're young men or teenagers. Their parents in Germany and Austria see the writing on the wall and know that they need to get their children out as quickly as possible. And as we all know about World War II and the Holocaust, nobody, there was nowhere for people to go. Nobody wanted these people. 
But fortunately, the British had set up two really important visa systems. One was a transit visa system. So one way that these families got their kids out of the country, the guys who would be the ex-troopers were on transit visas with the idea that they would come to England and then they would move on. The other way that they got them out was through the kinder transport program. So what ends up happening is in the lead up to the war, thousands of German Jews and Austrian Jews come, not all of them young people, a lot of them are middle-aged and older. And when war breaks out, um, Churchill does um, this sort of infamous statement, color the lot of them. And what that means is that there's a lot of agitation in the mainstream British press that's very xenophobic against uh, these German refugees. Of course, the unspoken thing is German Jewish refugees, but nobody's saying that German refugees. And the thing that sort of arises to the forefront is this idea that we can't trust Germans in our country and we need to, to deal with them. Of course, the thing that doesn't come up in any of the discussions is these guys are all German Jews and they're not, they're going to be on the side of anyone who's fighting the Germans, but that doesn't come into it. So what ends up happening is led by the British government, they set up a series of internment camps where those who are deemed the most dangerous of the German refugees, and this ends up being single young men, and these then will be all the men who are ex-troopers, or basically all of them are single young men. They're deemed to be too dangerous to let them out, to wander around England because they might do terrorism in their own country, and they might be sort of the enemy in our midst. So they set up a series, and I'd write about this in the book, and I have really great pictures of all of the stuff we're talking about as well. They set up a series of internment camps for German refugees or German immigrants or whatever, where something like 80% of them are Jews. Um, some of the internment camps are tolerable. They're not, I mean, it's not okay for any of these young men to be locked up, but they can manage it in places like Isle of Man and other places. Other internment camps end up being absolutely horrific. And I write a lot about this in the book. A lot of the men end up being sent, God knows why, to Canada and Australia. And the worst place to be sent is Australia. The, the ship ride over there was unfortunately, um, the, head, the captain of the ship was deeply anti-Semitic and, and basically tortured all the Jews who were in the hold. These were all Holocaust refugees. And then those guys get sent to an internment camp in the in the outback of Australia for a year. So all of the men or nearly all of the men who end up be, becoming ex-troopers are men who come from families in Germany and Austria, very loving, warm families. Some are Orthodox, some are secular Jewish families. Parents get them out usually by themselves as teenagers and then they feel great when they get to England because things seem to be okay. They're treated well. They're very happy. They miss their family, but they feel that they're safe. And then the shocking chapter in British history happens, which is their internment. And when the book came out, it became a bestseller in the UK. And I think part of the reason why that happened was because nobody had really written or talked about the internment. It was like new history to a lot of people. Um, so I write about that stage and the transformation of these men before eventually all of them are let out internment and then they make their way through this sort of complicated um, trajectory to be selected to be commandos. What kind of training did the commandos receive? So 
once they're let out of the internment camps um, and uh, they're sent, they're not allowed to join the military at that point. So they're only allowed to join, well, they're allowed to join the military, but they're not allowed to be in combat. They're not, they're called enemy aliens still, and they're not trusted with weapons. So they're put into something called the Pioneer Corps, which is a labor corps. They don't get to fight. And these guys are just champing at the bit because they want to get guns and they want to fight Nazis. Um, so they're all in this place called the Pioneer Corps where they have to build bridges and you know empty boxes off of trucks. They're really frustrated. They're really angry that they're there. They're put in alien cores, like they're segregated. And then these little signs start appearing in the in the in the Pioneer Corps saying things like looking for people to undertake a special duty with high risk or whatever. And all of the, the guys who'd be the ex-troops start to put their hand up and say, I want to be part of whatever that is. They end up selecting hundreds of them. They, they bring them to London. They're interviewed by MI5 and all these other things. And so what they're looking for is men who are physically capable, who are very smart and have a burning desire to fight the Germans. And most of, if not all of these men have it, they've, one of the men I write about lost his father in Dachau. They're, they're burning and they need to see that when they do the interviews. Once they're selected to be in the X troop, the transformation only just begins because then they're told after they're selected that they all have to take on fake British names, which is incredible. They have to hide the fact that they're who they really are, which is German Jews or Austrian Jews. They have to take on fake British backstories about why they have German accents. Maybe their nanny was ger German speaking or something. They have to, so immediately they have to come up with these new names that sound very um, Anglican, like one of the men I write about who's Orthodox Jewish Mountford Gans becomes Fred Gray. They all come up with names like Andrew Roth, whatever, whatever sounded very British to them. Um, and then they're sent to do their training, which was done in Wales because the person who ends up being the commanding officer, this wonderful Welsh, not Jewish man named Brian Hilton Jones, he was from Wales and he decides he's going to train them at a small town in Wales. So then because they're commanders, which is very a very elite unit, they, they don't have to bunk in dormitories. They're, they're given money to actually live with local Welsh people. So all of them go live in these little how, and I describe all this in the book. It was one of the funnest chapters to write was this chapter about, you know, they're living with Welsh families. There's Welsh food that they're dealing with. They can't let anyone know their background, that they're Holocaust survivors, that they're Jewish. They're trying to remember their new name. They're trying to remember each other's new names. It's really very confusing. And then Brian Hilton Jones decides what he's going to give them is literally the most thorough, thorough training in the British Army, which he does. So for the next year, they're trained in every aspect of commander training and counterintelligence. So for the commander training, it would be things like, you know, taking apart and putting together guns blindfolded. It would be going through abandoned houses, houses and um, taking apart um, mines and bombs before they go off. It would be firing machine guns. It would be practicing landing at night at the loch in the dark and swimming there. It would be amphibious assaults. They learned how to jump out of airplanes. They rappled up and down mountains. They, they became incredibly fit and capable and strong. They were given assignments like stealing things off of a base at night. Um, so they're getting all that training. At the same time, 
they're getting full counterintelligence training. And nobody, by the way, had ever done this before. You never combine these two assets, the brains and the body, which is what the two are, commando and counterintelligence. But these guys were capable. So then there's some of them are sent to Cambridge. They learned all of the parts of the German army. They, they learned everything about German base command, everything they need to do, know to do interrogations. How do, how do you get information from the enemy? And then to sort of top it all off after they've jumped out of airplanes and done all this stuff um, at the end of their training, they're dropped off. I think it's in, in like a, in a forest in Scotland, if I'm remembering correctly, and with nothing, no food, no water, no anything, and told you need to come back and make your way back to London somehow. And so like they steal motorcycles, one guy gets arrested as a spy, Brian gets them out of the um, prison and they make their way back. So they have to be the best of the best in every aspect of both being a soldier and being a, somebody who does interrogations as well. And they get all of that for a year before they start being selected for campaigns around, the, you know, Sicily campaign, D-Day, et cetera. In the book, um, you focus, if I remember correctly, on three of the commandos, not to the exclusion of the others, but that, that's, that's where the focus was. If you could just briefly give us a little bit of background of Peter Masters, Manfred Gans, who you mentioned, and Colin Anson. Yes. And yeah, so I decided when I told the story that I was telling the, the story of X Troop, which was about 86 men. But I wanted to tell it through three who I thought were paradigmatic of different experiences and also very importantly had a lot of archival material and all these guys did and also had families who had information to share. And so I worked with all the families of these three as well. And they were very different, the three of them. Colin Anson uh, came from a, ta a, 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 a loving middle-class, totally acculturated family in Germany. He did not know he was Jewish. And his father decided to tell him he was Jewish when he was like 13 with the rise of Nazism because he was worried that Colin was, would start not liking the Jews, not realizing, because this was the what, what was in the air, and that Colin would, would not know his background. So he sat his son down and he said, look, I need you to know that you're actually Jewish. Once his son finds out, and fortunately, this is when everything starts to change, he gets kicked out of his public school for being Jewish. It, it's terrible. And the worst day of his life is what I actually start the book with, is when he's sitting with his dad at a beer house in Germany and and some people start saying all this stuff about Hitler that's positive and his dad cannot take it anymore and he starts to say speak out against these people speaking in positive terms about Hitler somebody calls the police in and I tell the whole story in the book and the police take his dad away and while he's sitting there with his father his dad's sent to Dachau and like two weeks later they come to his door and said his daughter, father died of like a heart attack or something he was probably killed there so he ends up very poor. His mother's not Jewish, um, but he's considered Jewish and he considers himself Jewish after this. His mother loses her job because she was married to a Jewish guy who she refused to divorce. And then she gets him on one of the tra kinder transports at the very oldest age you're allowed to go. I think he's 17 um, and he has a very terrifying journey on the kinder transport. The Nazis come on the train. They throw all the kids luggage off. They make the kids jump off the train. Eventually, finally, he makes it to the UK. And he's one of the only ones in the book who does not get interred because he ended up working, helping out at this farm during the 
those years. But when he selected for the X troop, it um, it's absolutely transformational for him because he never feels he has any confidence or uh, strength or warriorness to him, and he quickly learns how to do it. And he and it's a huge transformation for him. And he ends up being one of the only ones who serves in Sicily and the Mediterranean and makes a crucial difference in those battles. So I, I focus on him primarily because he goes into those campaigns. The other two I talk about both land at D-Day. One of them, who's probably the person I speak about most in the book, is Monfred Gans, raised in an Orthodox Jewish family, which was unusual in Germany at this time, very Orthodox, very religious, very Zionist family. With the rise of Nazism, his family responds by making him learn even more Hebrew. One of his brothers makes his way uh, to Palestine, and his parents are wealthy. And with the outbreak of the war, they too see the writing on the wall. They put him on a train by himself to the UK, and they go into hiding. Um, and he ends up being probably the most capable warrior I write about in the book, at the forefront of all the campaigns. And for him, it's very complicated because he he's orthodox. Um, but he decides, as I write about in the book, that it's a mitzvah to kill Hitler and to fight the Nazis. And as his kids told me, it sounds like a very hard decision. It was an easy decision. It would, as his kids said, he would do whatever it took to fight the Germans. Whatever it took, he was going to do it. And he ends up being at all of the campaigns of the war uh, in Europe. He lands at D-Day. I can tell you later about that. It makes a huge difference at D-Day. He's at the Battle of the Bulge. Everywhere he's every he's everywhere. Um, and then he has an incredible story about. Um, looking for his parents in the last days of the war that I write about in the book. The third person I wrote about, I wanted to write about somebody from Vienna. So I wrote about Peter Masters. He came from a very cultured Viennese family. He wanted to be an artist. Um, and with the Anschluss and the outbreak of the war, his family realizes they're in deep trouble um, because they're Jewish. He's bullied. It's very terrible. He manages to escape with his sister and his mother on a train, again, another train. They make their way to the UK. Peter very excitedly gets accepted to, um, to art school in London, and then he's locked up and interred. And when he's interred, he decides he needs to fight the Germans and join the British military. So he's the third one that I focus on in the book. And he, he also does the Normandy landings and he goes through France um, and, and makes a big difference in the war. Let's talk a little bit now about Normandy and D-Day. If I remember correctly, the unit did not fight as one group, but were split up. Um, so take us just through the role that the ex-troop commandos played um, in preparation for D-Day. Right. So that was a very another very interesting aspect of this unit. First of all, it's very unusual that you have commandos who also do counterintelligence. But then while Brian Hilton Jones is training them and they get trained with other commando units. So other people besides Hilton Jones gets to see how capable they are. The British military starts to realize, wow, these guys are phenomenal. In fact, they're so good that we cannot risk having them fight as their own unit for two reasons. One is, you know, if there's like a roadside bomb, we might lose all of these guys and they're so 
capable and well trained, we don't want to lose them in a big group. The other thing that the British military realizes is that if they split them up and they put them in twos and threes in existing commando units, these guys will can be the tip of the sword in the commando units. They can be the leaders of all the other commando units. So when they land, these guys are going to be like the secret weapon that all of Lord Lovett's, it was all under Lord Lovett, his different commando units have that nobody knows are there. It's just it's just remarkable because normally when you go into war in the military, you train with your unit, particularly of your commando, for like a year. And these guys are sent to Southampton to wait to take the ships over to land at Normandy. They're told maybe one day before, look, you're going with this commando unit, and you're going with that commando unit, and you're going with this one. And this is unbelievable because all these commando units have known each other forever. They fought together. They've been trained together. And these guys are just thrown into the mix, basically told adapt and take over, you know, be leaders. Peter Masters, the artist from Vienna, as they're going to the ships, is told you're going to be in something called the bicycle unit, which was this, and I have photos of this crazy unit that they devised of men who would ride on bicycles and land and make their way to Pegasus Bridge in front of everyone. Those guys had trained together for, you know, six months. He's given a bike. The bikes are foldable. They're heavy. They don't have brakes. I mean, you have to be really trained and he, he doesn't get any training. He tends up, you know, being a leader in the group as they all do. So what, maybe one day before they land, they get sent their assignments with different commando units. And then so when they're all landing in groups of threes and fours on different ships at D-Day, um, a typical story is of sort of why why they were so important and, and what they were supposed to do and why they did it so well was Monfred Gans, the Orthodox guy who becomes Fred Gray. That's his, no, his, his fake name that he uses during the war. Um, so typical, so he lands, I think it was with, I can't remember, it's 47 commando or one of the, the commando units. They land at Sword Beach, and it's it's Monfred Gons who remembers the training. You have to get off the beach very, very quickly because, as we know about the Americans who landed on Omaha Beach, if you don't get off quickly, you're going to be slaughtered. So he remembers that. But as they're landing, they land sort of to the side, and there's complete carnage. And half of his entire commando unit is wiped out on landing. So... Monfort takes control of the rest. Remember, this is a guy who's just joined them like the day before. As he said, he has like a strange German accent. They don't know who this guy is. And he says to everyone who's survived, come follow me. We're going to get off the beach. And as he goes up the dunes, he immediately captures 20 Germans. And he has his gun out and he captures them. And he says in perfect but idiomatic German. So they, they're really discombobulated boys, you need to show us how to get off the beach because, of course, mines are laid all over the beach. And the Germans are so shocked that this German-speaking British commando, they actually show him and lead him and the rest of his unit off the beach, and then they keep going and make their way to the first French town. So he did exactly what they were supposed to do and ends up saving the life of the rest of the commando unit. And that's what they did throughout all of the campaigns. A little bit about, um, you write about the Hungarian hunk. <laughs> Great name. Uh, who was the Hungarian hunk and what, what was his story? So he's 
another phenomenal person I write about, um, actually start the, the prologue with his story. He was a Hungarian Jew, very um, acculturated. I don't think he practiced at all. Like the others, makes his way to the UK as a teenager. He's very sort of um, aristocratic. I think he goes to Cambridge or something and he starts moving in all these aristocratic circles. And he's selected to serve in one of the sort of special units doing special ops until they realize that he's he's an enemy alien Jewish guy. I don't know. They, again, they would never say Jewish, but he's considered an enemy alien. Um, he's selected for this unit. Then he's immediately kicked out of it because he's an enemy alien. He goes through the same kind of story as everybody else. Um, and while this is all happening, he falls in love with Miriam Rothschild of the Rothschilds. And she's incredible and deserves her own book. At this point, when he falls in love, when they fall in love with each other, she's working at for the Enigma campaign at Bletchley Park doing code breaking because she's so brilliant. She ends up being a very famous naturalist after the war. She's a very proud Jewish woman. She makes it so that her family's estate houses Jewish refugees. And she falls for this guy, George Lane, who's incredibly handsome. Like you said, they call him the Hungarian hunk. They secretly marry each other because if she marries him publicly, she will lose her citizenship because he's an enemy alien. So they marry secretly. Um, Brian Hilton Jones allows her to come with with um, George Lane to to the training and live there. So she's there and she did some great oral histories about the ex-troop that I wrote about. In the book, one of them, in one interview, she talked about being with the men and she said they were nothing like the ordinary soldiers. These guys were talking about Schopenhauer. I mean, these were very acculturated men and, and she loved these guys and she took care of them. So he, he's married to her and he's the second in command to Brian Hilton Jones. So he's the one who goes with Brian Hilton Jones to select the men who'll be part of the X troop, do, does the interviews is the head of the training of the men and he's tougher and stronger and more capable than like any of them. Um, and then what ends up happening is that uh, Brian Hilton Jones is contacted by the British military in the weeks before the D-Day landings to say, we need you to undertake a high risk special operation. Um, and once Hilton Jones hears about the operation, he thinks, I'm going to have George Lane do this. Um, so the operation is that somebody needs to land on a little rubber dinghy on the Normandy coast because there's a rumor out there that the Germans have laid mines along the coast that are not the standard teller mines. There's something different. They've done, they have some kind of special weapon. So the job of this person, it's really extraordinary, is to land there and ideally bring back a mine or take photos to figure out what kind of mines are laid there. Have they created a new weapon? George Lane is selected because he's brave and he's capable, but also he was on the Hungarian water polo Olympic team. So he's very capable with water. Um, so he is sent on a dinghy to get this intelligence. He's sent with another commander who's not Jewish and part of a different unit. They. He lands the first night, he comes back and he says, he, he scubas and he says, this is a standard teller mine. You guys can do D-Day as you want. They don't believe him. They say, that's not what their reports say. They send him a second time. He comes back a second time. And one of the reports says he actually brings back a mine. 
and he says it's standard you guys can do d-day they send him a third time the third time he's actually captured with the the other guy who's with him they're sent i tell the whole story in the book because it's so crazy um and they're sent to be to this castle right and He's pretending to be Welsh, and he knows that if he does a Welsh accent, it will hide the German accent because Welsh accents are different, and maybe the Germans won't recognize it. Um, and he's sent to um, be in, interrogated in this castle. Um, and the main thing he can't let anyone know is that he's in this X troop because they don't want anyone to know about the special force that they have. So he's sent into the library, and he is told to sit down. And he's sent to be interviewed to his complete shock by the head of the German high command who walks in and starts interrogating him. And he's pretending to have a Welsh accent and he does not give the game away, but he's, he's not sent to be killed as a prisoner of war. He's sent to a, a, a camp for prisoners of war officers. Once he gets there, he says, I know where the German high command is. I know where their castle is. And they get the intelligence back to London. And so he stays in there for the rest of the war. But after the war, he's given a military medal, which I cite in the book, which says, but for the actions of George Lane, D-Day would not have gone on as planned because he was the one who gathered the intelligence that let them know that they could do the landings. It's really incredible. And Miriam, you know, she's, by the way, she's pregnant during all of this. So she, it's just, it's an incredible story of heroism, but also what I keep trying to point out in the book is the importance of these guys in, in sort of making sure that that the, that, the, that the Nazis would be beaten. A little bit about um, the ex-troops role in invasion in Sicily, perhaps Corfu, Yugoslavia, remarkable, just all different um, theaters of, of World War II. Yeah, so I tell that story through Anson, the one I talked about earlier, whose dad was killed at Dachau, um, because he's selected with a couple of other ex-troopers. I'm still not quite sure why they were sent there, because their German language skills wouldn't have mattered as much. But I think that the reason they were sent there was it was before the D-Day landings. And I think that Brian Hilton Jones rightly wanted to prove to the British high command how capable these guys were. So they sent out three to kind of be at the forefront. And so Anson lands, oh my God, like with the land, him and this other guy, Paul Street, and I write about land at Sicily on the first sort of amphibious landings of the European continent. And they end up again, taking charge of their units because of their language skills. It's assumed they're all fluent in Italian, which they quickly learn. And they end up being at the forefront of these units as they move through Italy. As I write about in the book, it's Anson who single-handedly decides to take a boat and go to Corfu and liberate Corfu after these fierce battles that he had been involved with after sort of being in Yugoslavia. They end up being incredibly crucial in all those campaigns. And just to reiterate again, all while hiding who they are, that they're German, that they're Jewish, that they're refugees. Um, and what's what ends up happening with, with Anson is he gets injured in one of the battles. He's sent to uh, North Africa to a hospital there to get brain surgery because he has shrapnel in his brain. And the whole time he's there, he's writing letters to, to Brian Hilton Jones saying, you gotta, you gotta send me back. I gotta get back. You can't pull me out. And this is a guy who was like very worried as a kid, but he becomes such a warrior. He was so determined to win. 
um, Brian Hilton Jones gives in. I mean, normally these guys would be pulled out of the war, but that happens over and over again in the book that whatever the injury they have, they'll walk away from it to get to keep fighting. And that's what Anson does. So he makes his way through the whole Mediterranean campaign right to the final days of the war when he ends up um, being sent to camp um, to interrogate high ranking Nazi officials. And he just, he's just, it's such an incredible transformation. But that's the other thing they do that I haven't really talked about. They're also, they're not, it's sort of interesting, like when they're at D-Day in Normandy and making their way through France, by day they fight as commandos, by night they go stealthily behind enemy lines to gather intelligence or to capture sole Germans into interrogations. So by day they're commandos, by night they're doing counterintelligence and doing interrogations that are, end up being really crucial to winning the war. You, you point out, Professor Garrett, that after the conclusion of the war, um, some of the commandos received additional assignments. What were those assignments after the war? So that's one of the sort of darker stories um, I tell not only the internments, but with the X troop, the British government, it decides not to give them naturalization papers. So they're fighting the whole war as stateless people. So if they're captured, they're going to be killed as Jews. They're going to be killed as Germans. And they're going to be killed because they're stateless. The Geneva Convention is not, they don't have a country. And unfortunately, when the war ends, there, according to the deep research I did, there was one probably very anti-Semitic person in the war office who did not want these guys to be naturalized, even though all the commando people did because everyone knew how great they were. So what this means, though, is that in 1945, these guys, everyone else gets to go home. First of all, they don't have a home because they've all lost everything. But the government, uh, the British military quickly realizes these guys will be crucial, crucial to the denazification efforts. So they all stay in the army. They have nowhere else to go and they want to be there. So they end up continuing until about 1947. And like Monfred Gans, amazing, this Orthodox Jewish guy, he sent back to his own hometown of Borken, Germany, to be in charge of the denazification efforts. And it's incredible because he knew he knows who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. And he's in control now. Some of them are given guns and told to go find and round up Nazis who are hiding. And many of them are sent, including Manfredans, to do interrogations of high-ranking Nazis that are used in the Nuremberg trials. So they end up, almost all of them, um, in fact, I think basically all of them stay in the British military until about 1947. The whole time, Brian Hilton Jones is fighting fiercely to get his boys naturalized. And, and, and so are a lot of other men in the military. There's just this one guy who's not, who's not going to allow it. He's finally overridden in 1947, and they all get their naturalization papers, and then they leave the military. A lot of them migrate to the United States. Some of them go to Canada, and the rest remained in the UK. And, and I think one or two make their way to Israel. Um, Manfred Gantz's reunion with his parents, a remarkable, poignant story. Uh, what happened there? Um, so... Um, I get too emotional talking about the story, so I want people to read the book. So read the book. But basically, I'll just say in brief, in the final days of the war, Monfort has been told that his family, his parents who were in hiding, he had already been told that they were sent to Bergen-Belsen. 
Then he's told that they're sent to Terrorsenstadt concentration camp. And he makes a decision in the last, well, he's made a decision throughout the war. He keeps writing letters to his girlfriend saying, I'm going to win this war and rescue my parents. And, and the reader, and we're like, yeah, sure you are. Um, and then when he gets the, the telegram from, from the Red Cross that his parents are in Terrorsenstadt, the war is still on. He does the most incredible, unbelievable Jeep ride through Germany while the war is still going on to Czechoslovakia to go to Terrorsenstadt to find his parents. So read the book, but I'll just say this. There's a very nice photo of him with his parents in Israel after the war, so you know where it all went. But the, the great thing about it as well was he kept a diary that I discovered at the Holocaust Museum. So I had actually had all the details of what that journey was like. And in the I tell the book in sort of you know a general voice, but in parts of that chapter, it's really amazing. So I can use quotes from his diary to tell the story through his eyes. What was your experience like as you interviewed the children of the commandos? Well, something I should say that was even just as amazing was I actually got to interview two commandos when I wrote the book. So I started the book, it's been about four years ago. Um, I wrote it very quickly because I was burning with a fire to get the story out there. And at that point, until just a year ago, two of the men were still alive. Um, so I actually got to interview two commandos, which was extraordinary, um, life-changing to get to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. one of them um, pulled out a letter he had from Brian Hilton Jones that Brian Hilton Jones had written about how great he was after the war. And it was then I realized he became like their father. He was the most important person to these men besides their own parents. Um, and then I, at the same time, was reaching out to all the kids. And that was extraordinary because it was before lockdown. It was like the year before lockdown. So I flew to the UK and interviewed a bunch of people. I interviewed people all over the United States. Um, one of the most emotional moments I read about in the book was when I was interviewing, um, oh, you're, the covers we have, the hardcover has a picture of a bunch of the commandos on the front holding a Tommy gun. And it's the guy in the middle holding the Tommy gun. And I, and I interviewed his son in a little pub near London. And many of the kids of the commandos knew nothing about their dad's stories. And he never knew what had happened to his grandparents. And so after I interviewed him about his father, I said, like, I said, you know, I always have to ask the story, what happened to your grandparents? I'm sorry, but it's part of the history. And his, and this, this amazing man who had spent his whole life in the British military, a real tough British military guy. He just started crying as we sat there. And then he told me about how his wife had gone to Germany and discovered that his, his grandparents, his father's parents had been taken to the lodge ghetto and had never been heard of again. And he was telling me he only knew, he'd only learned about this like five years before I interviewed him. And so, when he when I was with him, I, I realized that the reason that this story is so important is because it's not just about it's about World War Two, but it's about the Holocaust. It's all about the Holocaust and World War Two. It's really bound together and something I hadn't liked about a lot of histories of World War Two by non Jewish sort of military famous historians is they always not all of them. Andrew Roberts is great. He doesn't do this, but a lot of them separate out the Holocaust. 
And I thought, you know, this is again proof that you can't do that. It's all one story. This is all one story and we need to tell the stories together. As you speak about the book and as you teach, uh, especially to young people, um, why should they study the story of the ex troop and what message do you try to convey to them? Um, it's really great. At Hunter, I got to teach a seminar for honor students. I had like 25 students in the class last semester and I called it Jewish soldiers. So I got to teach the, my book um, and, and I taught about all these people, Jews who fought back in World War II. Um, the lesson of this story has changed with me over time, but my feeling now about it, just because of the way the world's gone and the way the Jews are treated right now, is it's really important. I mean, it sounds incredibly banal, but it's really important as a story of fighting back and not budging and being strong and resisting and just saying, you know, enough is enough. I'm going to, I'm not going to allow this. I'm, I'm going to fight back with the full force of my soul when things have gone wrong. So I see it as a particularly Jewish story as well, though, because I think that we don't talk enough about Jews fighting back. I know we do with Israel, but we don't talk about it enough in America. And this is part in my mind of that narrative. Uh, we could go on and on, but I think we had enough spoilers already. So um, you can urge all our listeners and viewers to simply go online and purchase the book. Um, it's being translated into Hebrew. Who knows when that will happen, but it is being translated. Oh, okay, Hebrew. wonderful. Well, we'll, we'll, publishing. Yeah. We'll look, we'll look for that. Okay. Um, and again, Professor Garrett, thank you so much for your time today. It was just a remarkable story and um, appreciate your time very much. And thank you for having me and for doing this podcast too.